All right, Jeremy, what do you have today? I've got truth bait clickbait. What do you have? Well, sadly, I have afterbirth abortions. I have censorship. And I have our environmental destiny. Let's get to the truth. Okay, people, let's begin. We have liftoff. Get up, everybody. Are you ready to be baited with the truth? Good, because you're listening to the Truth Bait Podcast. I'm documentary filmmaker and podcaster Andrew Marcus. And with me always as we deconstruct America's propaganda war and put some truth back into the narrative is the only doctor of cultural therapy you should be seeing... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, give it up for the one and only Rebel Pundit, Jeremy Siegel. Thank you, Mr. Marcus. Jeremy Siegel. I have to tell you, your audio level is blasting loud, really hot at me. Are you okay? Is your level okay? Looks fine to me. All right, good. Well, then it'll, we'll, we'll fix it in post. Uh, Jeremy, Wait, did I sound really? Did I sound too loud? You sound no, well. You, maybe you just sounded very excited. <laughs> maybe that's all it was. I think that's what it was. <laughs> no, I think it's yeah. That is what it was. I came in excited today. Came in hot on the mic. Uh, right. How was your week? Did you watch the Kennedy hearings? The the censorship hearings. No chance I would do that. Yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why I didn't watch. <laughs> you, oh, so now you, <laughs> because I crutch. knew I knew I didn't have to because you would watch it for me. You've come to and rely would, on me. Yes. As hopefully our producers have come to rely on the Truth Bait podcast, which is why they share the show. Right, Jeremy? That's right. We ask you all to share, share the show. The show. Share the show. Go rate the show. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, you go to our Apple Podcast page. You scroll down past all of our episodes. This is episode 43, so the list is getting longer for you to scroll down. And at the bottom, that's where you can leave your rating and a comment. I haven't checked anything today. Have you checked? Have you checked recently? Let's go look. I have not checked. We had a uh, oh, yeah, we have one more. Hey, yeah, one more, one more star rating. We're still at five out of five, uh, but not a new, no new uh, written comment that I can see. Uh, sometimes those delay, but you know that's great. We don't, you don't have to leave a written comment. We love the five stars. Thank you for the five stars. We appreciate that. Is it better? Should we ask for four star ratings also, or only? Because we've been insisting on okay? only What's five wrong with star you? ratings. What do you do? What? No, we can ask for four star ratings. There aren't going to be any, Jeremy. Our producers understand uh, five star quality podcasting when they hear it. No, I was just wondering because we have insisted that only five star ratings are acceptable, and I was just wondering if somebody was holding back a four. 
oh, here's what I would suggest. They write us, let us know how we can be a five, and then they'll rate us a five once we are a five. In their eyes, write us at truth at truthbait.com. That's a good idea. Yeah, truth at truthbait.com. If you think we're a one or a two, I really want to hear from you. (laughs) That would help because we would know then what's wrong. Uh, And we need to know what's wrong. Because to us, everything's perfect. Oh, there's a lot that's wrong with the previous episode. Did you notice that there was a glitch in the previous episode? You told me about it. You informed me about it prior to my awakening that morning. Mm. You think, oh, I, did I wait? Uh, oh, I woke you prior. I told you prior to your awakening. That means I woke you up or you just know that I the received text a text. Came. I received a text upon opening my eyeballs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that said, there was a problem with the upload. Uh, yeah, I have no idea what happened. We uploaded cultural therapy uh, because I accidentally almost called you a cultural therapist in the previous episode. So we titled it cultural therapy and uh, I uploaded it. I went to bed, woke up in the morning, just happened to think to check the check the post. And it was here. I'll play it for you. You hear that? Are you going to play it? Yep, I am playing it. Yep. Nothing. If for some reason, the track was blank. I have no idea where in the process that happened, but and I, we, you and I have been recording very, very late. Today, we're recording that actually early for us, uh, but nor, the, the, your schedule, my schedule, our conflicts have forced us to record very, very late. It was extremely late into the wee hours. It was early in the morning, frankly, once I was posting and I just did not, my quality control skills were <laughs> lagged and, uh, and I uh, must have, I posted a uh, empty file. So I had to- A blank show. What I want to know is if any listeners heard the blank show. So, Before it was fixed. Nobody and I has have a said prize. anything. Has anybody said anything no to you? No one said anything, but but now I'm offering a prize. Well, here is the interesting thing, though. So I had, you know, we uploaded, I uploaded it as cultural therapy. Now I then go and I, I deleted the episode because you have a choice. You can just upload a new audio file, but then it takes a while to push that new audio file out. And what, what I was worried was that people would just go and counter the blank episode and never find that it was pushed, the new episode was pushed to them. So I deleted the episode and uploaded Cultural Therapy 2, which was the same thing. And uh, it, but with a, you know, with actual audio here. We have liftoff. That's from Cultural Therapy 2. We actually did have liftoff. And uh, uh, so. If people are wondering why it said cultural therapy too, I don't know if people see cultural therapy on there. When you go look where you, I don't know where you listen to the podcast, Jeremy, but where you do, do you see cultural therapy there? Or do you only see cultural therapy too? Uh, let me check. I'm curious what I people see, out there see. I see cultural therapy too on Apple Podcasts. And you don't see cultural therapy. Right. Ooh, that means I could, in theory, go back and change the name of culture, just take the two off of cultural therapy 
and just have it be cultural therapy. Although at this point, I kind of like that it's cultural therapy too. And then there's the mystery of, well, where's but cultural that, therapy one? <laughs> yeah, but you would have to name this episode cultural therapy too, so that it would make sense because we're, you're explaining why the whole. Well, then it, club it would be, happened. but it would be cultural therapy T O O. Because we already have Let's a cultural see. therapy too. Do you see? We ha- we can't have another yeah. one unless you're going to have a, a cultural therapy uh, twenty two. Yeah, it's now. It's see confusing. now. It's, yeah, it is. <laughs> I agree. All right. So, so what did you do this week? What have you spent your time on? Uh, what have you spent your valuable time on? Where are you? Are you in a safe zone right now? I am in a safe zone. I spent my time... I spent some time picking blackberries for Truthberry Farms Blackberry Jam. Is that right? Yes. You're, gonna, you're going into the jam business. <laughs> One jar at a time, apparently. Uh, three cups of wild-picked blackberries equals uh, two eight-ounce jars Two tablespoons of, of jam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it. I did it without pectin. I am, I, I, wow. Jar by jar, I'm getting better and better, although I, I need to try and figure out a way to do it in a way that it doesn't thicken up quite so much. Uh, so. You made jam. Oh, yeah. I made jam. Where did you learn how to make jam? Uh, the interwebs. Yeah, this I, is, I and you also, and you also did. Uh, there was a you had visitors at your swing set. <laughs> okay, I know where you're going. One with of this. the largest, <laughs> one of the largest wasps' nest I've ever seen. When we were over at your house. On the 4th of July, and I had all my kids, and you're like, hey, kids, if you want to go out on the swing set, go ahead. Just, uh, you know, be careful around the slide. And then, sure enough, like, there's the biggest wasp nest I've ever seen on the slide. Yes. Uh, And two of my kids got attacked by your pet wasps. It attacked children specifically. (laughs) It it preyed on children. It was a child predator wasp nest. Did you know the nest was there? Oh, absolutely. What are you kidding? <laughs> I thought your children were tougher than that. Come on. No, the point of this story is you sent me a picture like a day later, two days later, with a dead wasp nest. Yes. Did you call an exterminator yes. or did you do it yourself? <laughs> no, I did not do that no. myself. <laughs> oh, I you thought you were me? finally becoming a homesteader. Okay, so I was going to do it myself. You're making I jam. Looked up, you- I looked up online how to do it. You know, I saw the videos. It actually seemed pretty easy. And then I remembered, oh, I'm paying for a service already <laughs> to come and exterminate the critters around my property. It doesn't cost me any thing for them to come and do this it's already part of what i'm paying for and i quickly pulled out my phone and got my fingers dialing and that oh, day that day i have never been more disappointed in you than right now <laughs> that day that day they were out and took care of it yep wow yeah listen i thought you i'm like wow you went and got you're making jam, you're killing wasps, you're you know, living free and in, in uh 
in the land I'm of there. cheese. Baby steps, Jeremy. Baby steps. And and I want to say, had those wasps stung me, I would never have taken it as well as your children did. Your children <laughs> took it so well. Your little girls were so brave. They, you know, they were they were very bothered by it at first, but they they I was so surprised with how quickly they regained their composure and were like, yeah, no big deal. It's no big deal. By the time I had the baking soda and water in a paste ready to spread on their wounds, they were like, nah, no, don't bother. Yeah, it's not, not really yeah. a problem. <laughs> and I would have been in tears. <laughs> I might have been... I Somebody, somebody get the baking soda and the water. Yeah, I would have had a yeah, problem. Those things hurt. Those things hurt. Wow. Sometimes so, we get right into the meat, and sometimes we really do uh, meander before we get to the Well, heart. here I thought I was going to be introducing you as, like, the newest homesteading friend I have, and <laughs> instead you're just a guy that bottles up blackberries. I'm making jam. Hey, I-, I don't yet know how to walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm making jam. <laughs> I will get the next wasp's nest. And le- but I'm already paying for the service, Jeremy. Why would I do it if I'm already paying for the service? Yeah, but then there's like no adventure. I was going to videotape the, the guy, guy unless unless the guy gets chased so by the swarm. I was going to videotape him doing it in the hopes, not in the hopes, but you know, in the possibility <laughs> <laughs> that that might happen. And uh, but I turned around; he's already done it. He did it so fast. That's what I mean. It's so easy. You just spray it and done. Yeah, and walk dead. away. They're gone. They just literally, as they come out to get you, they drop dead. Yeah, I just did one this morning. There's got my uh, my friend Keith is over painting again, and he's like, "Listen, we're totally ready to go up there and paint that part of your garage. Not until you kill that nest." Mm-hmm. And it was a giant one like you had. It was funny. It was almost like I set it there like a trap. You know, it's like here, go go ahead and paint for me, okay? And then he's up there, and he's like, "No, dude." But you know that spray goes like number? twenty Do you want the feet. number to my exterminator? I took care of it already. That spray goes like twenty feet. They're dead. He's up there painting. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. Well, let's get up there painting ourselves here. Uh, what you have clickbait? What's your clickbait? Click what? Truth, you have clickbait. clickbait. You what brought, are you talking about? You brought clickbait to the truth bait podcast. Okay. I, I, I just realized what, it. Okay. I'm very intrigued. So, okay. So, and I don't have the clip of you, but I don't need it. We, uh, producer, executive producer Al sent in um, a story about uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and global warming. I can't find that story now. Um, oh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Or his, I have something very email. exciting for you. Just since you bring up Kennedy, I fixed his voice, and I have the formula, really? I have the secret formula to fix his voice. Okay, and it's a good thing too because you know there was that hearing, and so I've got some Kennedy. Not too much, but I've, I've, I've figured out a way to fix his voice. Um, and. What it is, it's in reference to uh, Q 
Kennedy, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people that like Kennedy like I do, but they're a little more on the fence and they're concerned always. They're like, I like him. I like what he says, but I'm a little worried he's like really pro environment, which is a funny way of saying that because I'm pro environment, but they're, they're worried that he's an too environmental much of environmentalist, right? Yes. And and he, and he may have been, it seems, in the past, but I'm not sure he still is. And he made uh, some comments about environmentalism uh, being used to usher in authoritarian controls mm-hmm. uh, in our life. This is such and good one of synergy. The th- oh, this is so good. <laughs> Go ahead. And one of the th- <laughs> and one of the things that he uh, said, which you brought a clip early on when we first started talking about him running for president, mm-hmm. and he's at a pro he's at like a street protest. It's years ago, and he's talking about what seems to be sounding like jailing people. Who do not agree with, you know, the climate change agenda or who are not pro environment. Do you remember that clip? He do was you, talking about the Do you have that the clip? Brothers. Well, I, I, I don't have the clip of us, but I have the it's in this interview. Do you have the episode that he's doing? Do you know what episode it was? You're accusing me of bringing clickbait to this show, and now we don't even know the context of how I brought it. I might have even said <laughs> at the time that it was clickbait. We're going to drill down. No, to the you truth might have. This matter. You might have. You. That's possible. You might have said it was clickbait. I think that that what's interest. No, because what what it was is we were talking about it, and you brought the clip, and you were like, you know, what about this, and you know, his environmentalism and stuff. So that the 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 soundbite is here it's a, this is an interview that he did a couple weeks ago with uh, the the brain trust over at uh, reason magazine it's nick gillespie and some other guy uh, i forget his name and they seem like they're really trying to get bobby kennedy uh kind of or trap him or figure, or maybe they're just trying to get to the truth like we are but anyways here's a here's here's the beginning of that uh segment explain what was your th- in the past you have called for the jailing of ceos and climate change skeptics we've got a clip from 2014 of you um let's run that clip and then could you explain what was your thinking and whether or not it's changed since then that's Nick Gillespie. You know who Nick Gillespie is? Yeah, he was in Hating Breitbart, which is what yes. I think he's famous for. He was wearing the same thing in this interview that he wore in Hating Breitbart. It's, and it's the same thing that he wears everywhere he goes. It's a black t-shirt, uh, black v-neck t-shirt. Well, he used to wear the it's leather the jacket he ever on wears. top of that. Yeah. This guy's never changed his clothes, ever. It makes me think that he might be he might be an op. It's there's something he's so committed to this uniform, kind of like Bannon and his three right. collared button down shirts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and his rain and his and his hobo raincoat. Um 
<laughs> so anyways, Nick Gillespie, he's got this look on his face when he's asking him, like, okay, let's see what this guy's going to say here. You know, he just looks condescending, and and that's how a lot of libertarians end, you know, because they have figured out the secret to all of politics, which is extreme radical libertarianism. Mm. Uh, so anyways. Sure. Be in jail. I think so. He was talking. He was asking him about that clip, which is the same clip that you brought to Truthbait a couple months ago. They should be enjoying three hots and a cot at the Hague with all the other war criminals who are there. What about politicians? Uh, people who deny, who express skepticism? They're selling out the public trust. And, you know, I think those guys who are doing the, the Koch brothers' bidding and who are against all the evidence of the rational mind are saying that global warming doesn't exist, that they are contemptible human beings, and that, you know, I wish that there were a law you could punish them under. It sounds like, from this clip coming in on Kennedy's comments, that he's talking about jailing people, uh, you know, over, you know, climate change. It does sound that way. You're right. Yeah. I don't think there's a, war, a law that you can punish those politicians under, but I, do I think the Koch brothers should be prosecuted for reckless endangerment? Absolutely. That's a criminal offense, and they ought to be serving time for it. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate okay. it. So now they come back in, and they're like, okay, we got you. Okay. Um, do you still feel that way? Obviously, we're down one Koch brother. <laughs> yeah. You, gotta, um, you have to look at the, the earlier part of that clip the earlier part of the clip i don't know if there's an actual earlier part of that clip or not that he talks about but what he's he's referring obviously to earlier comments prior to making that comment which has been cut out which you didn't show okay it shows that i was being asked a question about their criminal uh, conduct the Coke Energy at that time was, I think it was the third or fourth largest air polluter in the world. It was maintaining pet Coke piles in Detroit and Chicago that were poisoning uh, poor neighborhoods. It was, it was the, the, uh, it had been criminally convicted of violating environmental, which means it did it knowingly in order to make money. And what I say earlier on the clip, I say if a, you know, a black kid Steals ten dollars from a grocery store, he'd go to jail. But why shouldn't the Koch brothers be going to jail if they're if they're stealing hundreds of millions of dollars? Which was from do you? So do you think people who? Well, uh, yeah. Let me finish that because I do. I I have said that um, that companies that. Certain, certain, or certain uh, entities, corporate entities, that habitually violate the law, or whose purpose is to injure the public, um, uh, public wheel, the public interest, those corporations should be subject to the corporate death penalty. And what that means is there's a, there's a, um, you know, the corporations are licensed by the states, but most of the states require that, that the corporation, in order to get a charter, and it operate in the public interest. And if it departs from the public interest, in other words, if it's completely consumed by private interest that is actually damaging the public interest, it, the states, the Secretary of State, 
and the Attorney General have the capacity in various states to yank that charter in every state. Dick Gillespie and this other guy, his sidekick on this interview at this point, you could see their like eyeballs are twitching because they're like triggered because they're such proponents of unfettered, uninterrupted free market capitalism that they champion the rights of the corporation, usually to an extent that gives them greater rights over people. Um, Well, that or that or they're sitting there producing an interview with the guy and he he's a run-on sentence it, it, that's true and he and, and, and a- with his voice being so hard to listen to to begin with it, you he could be sitting there as the interviewer thinking this interview is dying on the vine <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true just like my clip is but anyways <laughs> uh no but so you know, Kennedy's talking about uh, dealing with with corporations and corporate power and the way that it goes. But the other thing I think they're triggered by is uh, Koch brothers are probably the biggest, probably one of their biggest funders over at Reason. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, so now they're yes, you're they're, you're, you're correct. <laughs> they're they're a little worried about the corporate death penalty coming their way. Stay. You know, somebody has the ability to yank that charter. For example, in New York State, in the 1990s, um, the uh, Republican Attorney General uh, uh, liquidated the Tobacco Institute. The Tobacco Institute was an institute that was created by the tobacco by Philip Morris and the other tobacco companies. Those companies knew for 60 years that their product was killing one out of every four of their customers who used the product as directed, but they were lying to the public about it and they were creating. Right. Hey, look, let me finish this because this is important for people to know, you know, because I've been accused of this before. I I think this is interesting. And it, it's, it, it's, it, he's, t- you know, talking about this tobacco Institute, it was uh, evidently created to, Give cover and and cover up for the fact that tobacco is harmful for people. And there, there are how many types of organizations and entities out there now that are you know do the same thing. And it's every, and then there's every uh, you know corporate interest pushing the vaccines or health initiatives or there's the global warming stuff. And what Kennedy was talking about was companies pushing fraudulent. And knowingly fraudulent information. Yeah, uh, should that should that be penalized? You love him. <laughs> I like him. You love I do. him. <laughs> I like him. I like him. Yeah, I you like this guy because he's because I think he's honest. I don't. I, I I thought he was at first, but I don't think so anymore. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Jeremy. Do you have more? Do you have more that you want to play of him of your friend? Um, well, he does go on in the, I, I don't need to play it all. He, he does go on in the interview to make the case that the way COVID, uh, restrictions and authoritarian rules were put in place to control our behavior were used and how they're similarly doing the same thing with the climate change agenda. And this and is if why you listen I don't to trust it, him, Jeremy. And if you listen to it, he he that's 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 what he says. He does not sound like he's for it. They asked 
him he because he goes on to then say that the comments he was making back then were based on certain information that was put forth and he basically says that if he had the information then that he has now he wouldn't have made those comments oh, now that, i'm not excusing his this comments is the best. i'm loving this moment right now <laughs> i'm not excusing his comments what i'm enjoying is his willingness to not somehow try to spin his commentary into something that it wasn't and he's he even concedes a point to this other guy at reason um you know it's like there's a humbleness and he's like yeah i might have been wrong about that okay well okay well let's so uh, by the, let's see if by the end of what i'm about to play you feel that he is genuine okay and maybe I'm looking at it with too jaundiced of an eye. Do you want to hear what I have first, or do you want to hear my technique for uh, repairing him? Which is better. <laughs> the technique is pretty good. Hang on. <laughs> okay. It's all fabulous. I don't know what you're talking about. So here's a clip of Kennedy on Joe Rogan. Okay, just a short clip. This is non-effective. This is just him. But he was looking at these non-conventional... Uh, data sources like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry, actuarial in, insurance industry data. <laughs> so not only is his voice hard enough to listen to, <laughs> he's talking about actuary data. <laughs> All right, here is the repair. But he was looking at these non-conventional uh, data sources like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry, actuarial in, insurance industry data. Could you tell the difference? Yeah, I would say it's better. Sources like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry actuarial uh, data sources like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry actuarial in, insurance industry data. Do you want to know how I did it? I don't know if I even want to say it out loud. The whole world will have the formula. This is like a secret formula. A secret sauce. Chat GPT <laughs> or AI. <laughs> I, uh, okay, it, it's possible that it could be artificial intelligence, uh, but it was me. <laughs> it just, I don't. Well, that's definitely artificial exactly. intelligence. <laughs> I won't take credit. I don't know <laughs> if I'll characterize my intelligence as authentic. Uh, I just had the bright idea to speed him up by 20%. That's oh. that's all it is. I sped him up by 20%. If he got him a brain implant, an <laughs> right. AI brain implant, you could speed him up by 20%. He just needs to have all of his comments recorded and sped up 20%. Or there should be a, like yeah, a, a real like well, a, a real-time AI, you know, filter that he could go through. I think you just created a job for yourself at the campaign. <laughs> I'm on it. I'll still do the show, though. You could be his <laughs> full-time, you know, voice engineer. Uh, okay, so this is from a talk that he gave to the University of Chicago. It's posted eight years ago. I don't. I don't have the exact date of the talk, but I assume it's probably pretty close to when it was posted. Um, our environmental destiny. And I have a few clips from it, which I think were, I, 
I have not taken them out of context, but I have lifted them out of the longer piece. But I think they are illustrative. Here's the first one. I, I got into this, into uh, the environmental racket, um, working for fishermen on the, on the Hudson River. So I just like that very, that literally was at the very front of his comments. Did anything jump out to you about that? No. I, I got into this, <laughs> into uh, the environmental racket. The environmental racket. He just meant business. Really? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's one of those truth wants to come out kind of moments. It sounds, to me, it sounds pretty honest. <laughs> okay. That's what it is. It's a racket. Okay. Okay. Very interesting you say that. Let's keep going. I would argue that in 100% of the situations, good environmental policy is identical to good economic policy. If we want to measure our economy, and this is how we ought to be measuring it, based upon how it produces jobs and the dignity of jobs over the generations, over the long term, and how it preserves the value of the assets of our community. If, on the other hand, we want to do what the polluters want us to do, which is like the Koch brothers or Exxon, the people who are funding the Tea Party, which is to treat the planet as if it were business and liquidation, convert our natural resources to cash as quickly as possible, have a few years of pollution-based prosperity, we can generate an instantaneous cash flow and the illusion of a prosperous economy, but our children are going to pay for our joyride, and they're going to pay for it, and we can make a few people billionaires by impoverishing the rest of us. Now I ask you, Jeremy, are you down with that description of basically just major industry in this country? Because that's really what the Koch, the Koch brothers are major infrastructure industry. Mm-hmm. Are they evil? Are they I evil so. capitalists just trying to strip the planet so that they can get a I don't short think they're term capital. I don't gain? think the Koch brothers, I don't think the Koch brothers are capitalists. Do you think Unless that, that they at, are trying to destroy, that they don't care that they're destroying the planet just for some profit? Yes. You really I do believe, not believe that? The, yeah, I do not believe the Koch brothers are interested in humanity or the well-being of people. How about just all. their own grandchildren? I don't know about their grandchildren. But you, I, you don't think I, they care I, about I their the, own grandchildren? I don't know what, do what they Bidens? care about. I think the Koch brothers are evil. Wow. Wow. What do you base that on? I look, I don't know that they're angels. I think they're Maybe they are I think evil, they are but I don't global. have any information to base that. I think they're just as evil as George Soros. Okay. I, I think they are globalists. I think they have been positioned. And because what he said was accurate but in many ways. But he's not upset with them because they're globalists, Jeremy. The, listen to the way he described them. He lumped the tea no, party in. No, he's upset in. at them because he thinks they're. He's upset at them because he thinks they're polluters, and he thinks that they're corrupt in how they conduct their business operations that lead to pollution. That was what it sounded like to me. Okay. Now he didn't. He didn't give any evidence in that clip. Right. Just assume. So I'd like to see. I'd like to see some, I guess I'd like to see some, you know, it's fair to want to see evidence of that. But the, but the way that the Koch brothers uh, 
control and pull the puppet strings of all of the nonprofits is the same way that George Soros does, the way they're intertwined into every single aspect of politics of the right, they are they're pulling the lever of the direction of the movement and they were funding the Tea Party. Well, and they were misdirecting the Tea Party. But hmm. they got every they got everybody I think the tea party to become, was more than just who, who, some of the big funders that that came in after the Tea Party pretty much grew organically. It did, and then they took it over basically, and they took it over really? through funding everything. Yeah, I just don't know that that makes them evil. For hold on again, it does if their interest is undermining. No, 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 hold on. I'm going to stop you because. We're talking about two different things. We're conflating two different things. The reasons you think they're evil and the reasons Kennedy thinks they're evil. And the question is not whether or not you think they're evil for different reasons. It's do you agree with Kennedy's uh, uh, characterization of them? Well, I would have to see. I would have to see more evidence of how they're doing what he's accusing them of doing. But my general tendency now at this point, seeing what I've seen over the last decade and a half of following this stuff, I would side with him before I would side with the Koch brothers. And I would operate under the assumption that they are working against the interest of the country and against the interest of the people because I have seen how much they do in and toward the interest of globalism and getting rid of the United ah, States. And Kennedy's not doing that? Kennedy's not a part of any of that? Maybe he is, but playing. I haven't let's, seen it. Okay, well, let's keep playing. When Parliament was debating a cap-and-trade system that's very similar to the one that we passed in the United States Congress, it was called the Waxman-Markey Bill two years ago, and it was then killed by the oil industry in the Senate. And it was the cornerstone of Barack Obama's energy policy. And to its credit, Parliament ultimately passed the bill. Their bill was much, much tougher. And the bill was a, you know, it was, a, it's like a no-brainer. It was actually, the system was dreamt up by the right wing of the Republican Party, and it was just, it was a way to impose cap and trade. It was a way to impose free market logic. Huh, oh, oh I, I, I love Freudian slips. They're my favorite. <laughs> he is talking about cap and trade, of course, but he's trying to, Put it in different language. Say, you know, it was, uh, it's like a no-brainer. It was actually, the system was dreamt up by the right wing of the Republican Party. And yeah, cap and trade was so right wing. You remember how that was like such a right wing thing? How Republicans were like, yeah, cap and trade, we need cap and trade. I don't, I don't remember well, that I at all. Well, I think there were, I think there were. Republicans oh, yeah, the pushing right wing, for cap and yeah, the trade. The right wing of the Republican Party, no. The establishment, maybe. The right wing of the Republican Party was not going for cap and well, trade. Did he it say wasn't right writing, wing? They weren't writing did cap and trade. Did he say right wing? He said did right. He say yes, right? he did. He said, the, he said it's as though it came straight out of the right wing of the Republican Party. Discredit Parliament ultimately passed the bill. Their bill was much, much tougher. And the bill was a, you know, it was, a, it's like a no-brainer. It was actually, the system was dreamt up by the right wing of the Republican Party, and it was just, it was a way to impose cap and trade. It was a way to impose free market logic <laughs> onto the Okay, so he's, carbon. this is what he does, okay? He takes, I think, he takes leftist dogma and wraps it up in a, a veneer of, of conservatism or free marketeer. 
ism, free marketism, free market. Well, it sounds like it sounds like this. I don't know what is this event again. This is at the University of Chicago. He is giving a speech called "Our Environmental Destiny." Let's play a little more. In England, virtually everybody accepts the science behind global warming. They haven't been deluged as we have in this country by two hundred million dollar propaganda campaign funded by the Koch brothers, by Exxon, by the American Petroleum Institute over the past 20 years to persuade Americans that there's scientific doubt about global warming. So mm. in England, everybody recognized the science, um, they, they, uh, and they understand this is, they look at this as a grim reality that government has to take a strong hand in addressing. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, it was eight years ago. I mean, I disagree with some of that for sure. Yeah, some of it. Let's just dig into it. That, that you know, they're so smart in London because they, they're not uh, deluged with all this oil money that convinces people, that, that tricks people into thinking that climate change isn't real, that global warming isn't real. That's some garbage right there. Then you no, they do do that. No, I'm sorry. The re- they I would don't explain to, they don't it differently. They don't need to spend a dime because most people know that it's garbage. No, but I fraud. would explain it. I've explained it differently, and that the that the 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 money that that he's calling propaganda. I also call propaganda that comes through Fox news and all of these places. It's, 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 it, it's created and put out in a way that creates a, it makes a paradigm. Jeremy climate gate had already happened. Climate gate happened two years before this climate gate being when, when the, uh, the put the NOAA, the pushers of, of, global climate change narrative were exposed about lying about the hockey stick graph that Al Gore used for his uh, load of garbage movie, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. So, so we already knew that all this data was a fraud when he was, was still pushing this as gospel. So in England, everybody recognized the science, um, they, they, uh, and they understand this is, they look at this as a grim reality that government has to take a strong hand in addressing. Ooh, government has to take a strong hand in investing. Well, that sounds really free market. This guy's full of, uh, he's full of it. You can decide what it is. I spent a lot of my time over the past 30 years suing the coal industry and coal burning utilities. That's nice. Uh, up until recently, I thought that it was bad for uh, the government and uh, these entities to be suing coal out of business. I thought we needed coal. And I was in uh, West Virginia two years ago, and I had a six-and-a-half-week jury trial in the state. And in the end, we won the biggest judgment in the history of the state. It was later essentially dismantled by the West Virginia Supreme Court, which is just um, a subsidiary of the coal industry in the state. <laughs> we know this, that every nation that has decarbonized its society has experienced instantaneous process. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's reading stupid talking points yeah, that, th- that are wrong. This one's nuts. This one is nuts. 
We know this, that every nation that has decarbonized its society has experienced instantaneous prosperity and wealth. Iceland in 1970 decarbonized, decided to decarbonize its society. At that time, it was the poorest country in Europe. They really wanted to get rid of carbon. They were 100% dependent on imported coal and oil. They wanted to get rid of it because they were frightened of global warming, which impacts the northern latitudes disproportionately. And again, there were naysayers, and people say, we have, we have to go slowly, but Iceland moved very deliberately. Within 15 years, they had completely decarbonized, and Iceland today gets 95% of its energy from, uh, from geothermal, local geothermal. But it went during that period from being the poorest country in Europe to being the fourth richest country by GDP on Earth. And now? Now, unfortunately for Iceland, <laughs> they spent virtually all of their newfound wealth on bundled derivatives, and they are once again the poorest country in Europe. Womp womp. Uh, well, is that the fault of... <laughs> Is that the fault of alternative energy? I just, I, 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 amazing that they they were the richest and then they spent all their money poorly and now they're the poorest. I don't know. It just is a very convenient narrative for him. Well, it's it's but he says something interesting to me. Is is I don't know if it's true. I'd have to see it. But it did it affect? You know, was the wealth of that nation affected? Did it did it improve? Uh, the financial condition for people there. So was when the they made did that they, change or the, not? So the fraud of the the progressive left hand did was that responsible for their demise or was it the fraud of the progressive right hand? Yeah, I don't know which which progressive no, hand it was that but, destroyed them, but yeah. No, but there the the problem is is all of it is in is so muddied and it's hard to find truth in in any uh, of it I because think we can say we, that, it's easy that, to. Because it's easy to it's easy to you know rah rah coal rah rah gas and I'm not against these things but those industries re receive and rely on enormous government subsidies yeah, and I always agree have. With that. I also, agree with that. yeah, sure, yeah, but that's a, that's not the argument he's making. That's not what he's talking about. He is saying that no. decarbonizing leads to instant wealth, Jeremy. Does that jive with you? I, it sounds inaccurate to me. <laughs> inaccurate. It sounds like a load of garbage. Sweden. Yeah, it does. I mean, oh, Sweden. I agree. Sweden. Sweden. Sweden's amazing. Sweden in 1997 decided to decarbonize its society and incidentally to shut down its nuclear power plants and close the two biggest nuke plants, slapped a $150 ton tax on carbon. And Sweden... Um, since then, and again, you had, you had tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. They slapped that free market tax on carbon, by the way, that free market application. Uh, rushing into that space to create new forms of energy from wind, from tidal, from solar, from geothermal, from putrid garbage and sawmill waste. And today, Sweden, Sweden since 97, Sweden's economy has grown by 45%, while its energy use has dropped by 9%. Brazil... 20 years ago, decarbonized its transportation system, and as a direct result of that choice, Brazil, uh, it, while the entire world economy kind of spirals and collapses, Brazil is enjoying the longest, most robust economic expansion in the history of Latin America. Brazil. Are you seeing a pattern? <laughs> I'm seeing yeah. a pattern here. He he is so. Just again, I know that uh, it was it wasn't an executive producer Anne who sent. The what you referenced earlier, where he was outraged that they're using global warming as a as a fear tactic. All I'm saying is that this guy has been at the center of 
pushing the entire ecosystem that is that fear that everybody's experiencing now. Well, and he should know. Right, I guess so. According to Scientific American, <laughs> we're number three in terms of solar energy. Scientific American uh, just did a report that showed you could power the entire U.S. energy grid from an area at 75 miles by 75 miles in the desert southwest. Um, we're number one in wind energy in the world. And the Great Plains states are kind of the Saudi Arabia of wind. North Dakota is the windiest place on Earth at sea level. We have enough, according to the Scientific American, we have enough harnessable wind in Montana, North Dakota, and Texas to provide 100% of our energy grid three times over, even if every American owned an electric car. The price of wind and solar is dropping so dramatically, particularly solar, because the Chinese involvement and because of technological, um, uh, the pace of technological improvements, the price of solar since last year has dropped by 85%. The problem is the North Dakota wind farmer cannot get his electrons to markets in Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, New Orleans, New York, or Chicago because they will diffuse in the line before they cross the North Dakota border. And what we need to do is to build a, we need a national campaign like we, like Eisenhower launched with the highway system back in the uh, 60s when I was a boy to connect every American community to a national highway system for the sake of national cohe cohesion, for the sake of commerce, and for the sake of national security, but to do it with an electric system to connect every American to a unified national grid. We changed the rules in California, the group that I work for, NRDC. We rewrote the rules so that instead of making money by doing bad things, utility CEOs make money, the same amount of money or more, but by doing good things. So, and this wasn't a radical idea. They, they make money by getting their consumers to conserve energy or to switch to renewables. It's not a radical notion. Before we had deregulation in this country, the way that utilities made money is by, by building capital projects. So they would go to the Public Utility Commission and say, I want to build a dam. The dam's going to cost $100 million. I want to make 12% uh, profit per annum, and I want that integrated into the rate base. The PUC, if they could demonstrate a need, the PUC would stamp it approved, and they go ahead and build the dam. Today, the way that the utilities make money in California is they go to the Public Utility Commission and they say, we want to take the, uh, the Edison light bulbs out of a million homes and replace them with LED light bulbs that use 12% of the energy. We want to go into a million homes and tear out the hot water boilers and, uh, um, and the refrigerators and, and air conditioners and other appliances and replace them with more efficient um, uh, models. It's going to cost us $100 million. We want to make 12% profit. And it's going to save a lot more energy than we would create by investing in a bed dam or a power plant. In some cases, five to 10 times the amount of energy per dollar. Because we, in 1982, we rewrote the law in California to make it so that free market capitalism serves society rather than getting rich by doing evil things. Today, Californians use half the energy that everybody else uses in our country. I'm a partner in the biggest green tech venture capital firm um, in the country, and so I, I'm deeply involved in building what? wind what? farms. Wait, solar what? Wait, what? Uh, because what? We, I'm a partner in the biggest green tech venture capital firm um, oh. in the country, and so I, I'm deeply involved in building wind farms, solar farms, LED lights. Oh, that explains a lot. Can you imagine? This guy you uh, helped change the law in California so that they could use free market tax money to go eliminate light bulbs and rip out people's uh, uh, water heaters 
and put put in excellent new efficient ones that weren't made in China or anything. Uh, oh, but 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 no, but it's totally altruistic because the guy is because we. I'm a partner in the biggest green tech venture capital firm uh, in the country, and so I I'm deeply involved in building wind farms, solar farms, LED lights, electric cars, etc. How's your yard side coming, Jeremy? <laughs> How's your Kennedy Trump yard side coming? I'm hammering it in the ground right now. <laughs> Eyes wide open, my friend. Eyes wide open. Let's see what else do I have here. I we have a company called Cha Cha. It's one of our portfolio companies. You may have heard of it. If you dial Cha Cha two four seven two four seven on your computer on your cell phone. This is actually this is very interesting considering how old this is. It will answer any question. You know, usually within a minute. So I, I was showing it to some in China the other day to some Chinese friends of mine, and I said. I said, ask me any question. I said, what was Mao Zedong's favorite lunchtime meal? And I, I did it, and it comes back a minute. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, a couple things here just to think about. First of all, he's demonstrating this to his friends in China. Okay, so there's your, there's your non-globalist right there. He's pitching tech in China. And look at what the tech is. That's ChatGPT eight years ago on a cell phone. AI. I, we have a company called Cha-Cha. It's one of our portfolio companies. You may have heard of it. If you dial Cha-Cha 247-247 on your computer, on your cell phone, it will answer any question, you know, usually within a minute. So I, I was showing it to some, in China the other day to some Chinese friends of mine, and I said, I said, ask me any question. And they said, what was Mao Zedong's favorite lunchtime meal? And I, I did it, and it comes back a minute later saying, spicy brown bean soup on pork fried rice. And I, I don't know if that's right or not, but it gave me an answer. <laughs> You think about what that would have cost you a few years ago. Today it's free because we built a national grid that's a marketplace. It's free information forever. Uh, to me, what really jumped out there again, so that's eight years ago. Our, our intel agencies have been using AI for many years. It's only just now coming out into the public. And... What he was demonstrating was early AI on a cell phone, pitching it to his Chinese friends. Obviously, you have Kennedy derangement syndrome. <laughs> no, I was, I was right there with you until I just went digging, man. I just went digging, and now I'm very suspect. It, uh, look, in all fairness, I clipped something that I agree with. Okay, I'm not just here to bag on him. Uh, let me, I'll pl let's play this. The real threat to democracy comes from excessive corporate power. And if you look throughout American history, the most visionary political leaders, Republicans and Democrats, have warned Americans against excessive corporate power. Teddy Roosevelt said that America would never be destroyed by a foreign enemy, but that our beloved democratic institutions would be subverted by malefactors of great wealth who would steal them from within. Dwight Eisenhower said, a Republican, said uh, in his most famous speech ever warned Americans against the domination by the military industrial complex. Abraham Lincoln, the greatest Republican in history, said in 1863 at the height of the Civil War, I have the South behind me and I have the banker, I have the South in front of me and I have the bankers behind me and for my country I fear the bankers more. And Franklin Roosevelt said in World War II that the domination of government by corporate power is quote the essence of fascism. And Benito Mussolini, who had an insider's view of that process, <laughs> said essentially the same thing. He, would, he complained that fascism should not be called fascism, it should be called corporatism. 
because it was, in his words, the merger of state and corporate power. And what we have to understand is that the domination of business by government is called communism. The domination of government by business is called fascism. And our job is to walk that narrow trail in beneath, between, which is free market capitalism and democracy and keep big government at bay with our left hand, big business at bay with our right. And in order to do that, we need a free and independent press that's willing to speak truth to power, which we don't have in this country. And we also need a educated public that can recognize all the milestones of tyranny. And that is your job. Okay, so I agree with that, except that he is an investor in green tech using the government to commandeer tax dollars to push the policy he wants. Jeremy, how is he any different? How is he's a Koch brother? He's a green Koch brother. Maybe. Maybe. I'm sorry I've done this to you today. <laughs> I didn't realize that was going to happen, but <laughs> he walked into it <laughs> like a buzzsaw. <laughs> the problem is I don't care. <laughs> let, it, let it settle in. <laughs> let, let it settle in. Well, oh, look, so I'm this is we are now very Kennedy heavy. I'm going to call an audible and not play most of what I have from the hearing. I really, I didn't have a ton because, you know, I have a new approach to these things. I'm not really, uh, I don't think we're here to provide big encapsulations of these, of these giant hearings. I think we're only going to pull out the things that are most interesting. I uh, pulled some clips that went viral that were up on Gateway Pundit. I thought we could talk about those, but let's let's bypass those. I want to go to the just the one and only thing that I think was of real interest in this hearing, and that is uh, the uh, definite. What, let's see. It's um, here. We get. Uh, there's a little bit of Massey at the beginning of this, but he he tees up the question. This is a hearing on censorship that began with an effort, with a formal motion from the other side of the aisle to censor Mr. Kennedy. They do not want him to speak, yet that is the topic of this hearing. They have kept him from speaking. A collusion between the government and private organizations. Mr. Kennedy, in your opening statement, you um, introduced us to this word malinformation. Can you tell us more about this made-up word, what it means, and some of the uh, things that you've tr said or tried to say that you've been censored for that's been characterized as malinformation. And now I'm editing on the fly. To your question, the term malinformation was coined to describe information that Facebook and Twitter and the other social media sites understood was true, but that the White House and other federal agencies wanted censored anyway for political reasons because it challenged official orthodoxies. That, I think, is probably the most important thing that came out of the hearing was just the highlighting of malinformation as a concept, because that is the ratcheting up. You had uh, disinformation, which came out of the KGB. They invented the tactic of disinformation or lying. They, I don't, they didn't invent lying. They just they invented the name. <laughs> uh, and then misinformation, which is people passing along inaccurate information they don't realize they're doing it but that's what makes it misinformation it's like accidental passing of disinformation and now they've invented something new called malinformation which is information that's accurate it's true but it's disruptive to i guess national tranquility peace and tranquility 
uh, contrary to national interests, uh, against national security. So people should just, I think, keep their ears open for malinformation. We're going to get more of that. That's, I think that's about as or- Orwellian as I've seen it get. Are you guilty of malinformation, Jeremy? Uh, you mean just information that's dangerous, but true? <laughs> dangerous to the powers that be. Yes, I'm guilty. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I think people need to keep their eyes open for the possibility that Kennedy is not what he is appearing to be. He, I think he is. Well, I think he's. Di- I think I. I'm giving him room. Uh, I'm going to give him room to. Uh, how should I say it? To dump his stock in all of the green tech that he yeah. has. Yeah. Yeah. Give him room for that because I bet that's coming real soon. I think it'll be interesting to see. He's he is I, he's a fascist, Jeremy. He's a fascist. He will use the government to destroy private enterprise he doesn't agree with. Fascist. That's all I'm saying. Hmm. You heard it here first. And that's why you're tuning into the Truth Bait Podcast. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we've arrived at that point in the podcast where we tell you how it is we make this all possible. We use something called the value for value model, and it's quite simple. You've just listened to an hour of this podcast, this amazing debate back and forth between Jeremy and myself on RFK. Junior, is he fascist? Is he not? Do you find value in this conversation? If you do, we ask you return value to the podcast. And there are a number of different ways to return value to the podcast. Jeremy, do you want to tell them how they can do it? Well, they can start by sharing the show, which is critical. Uh, They can also rate the show. They can volunteer to help the show. We asked in the last episode if anybody out there listens to the show uh, while they're sitting at a computer, that would be somebody that could maybe help to pull or record uh, their favorite clips of particular episodes to be able to use those and share those around as promotional content for the show. Those are just some ways that can be extremely helpful. Sending us content too. That is that really is the one of the major uh, uh, sources of value coming back towards the show uh, that has really uh, been exciting to watch. People writing in, producers writing in with content that they're finding. Did you see uh, Jeff from Elkhorn has been sending us? Uh, he's got a he's got a story he's working on. I think. Did you see that? Did you see it come across the email? I think I did see it come across. Uh, let's see. He wrote in... He's writing in about this film from Grace Productions called The Essential Church. It is confirmed in 170 theaters, maybe more by now, because that was a couple days ago. Um, I've never heard of this movie before. 
It's at essentialchurchmovie.com. Uh, he wrote 40 minutes in, and it's excellent. I will offer thoughts after I've heard the entire podcast. Oh, wait, he's talking about us. Sorry. <laughs> I thought he was talking about the film. <laughs> I was wondering, how did he watch the film so fast? Uh, well, thank you for that compliment. Uh, I'd ask you both to consider seeing the movie documentary being released soon and being screened at our church, um, Essential Church Movie. And then he sends in the trailer, and let me just play a couple minutes, a couple seconds of this. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home, that's 40... California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By me. So, we'll stop it there. That was about halfway through the trailer. Uh, it sounds interesting. I don't know, you know, um, this is the thing with I films think, like this. Is uh, will it speak outside the bubble? You know, or, or is it only going to speak to the bubble? And I, there, it's fine if it's a film that only speaks to the bubble. Uh, but, you know. I'm... I was slightly familiar with the film. I had seen uh, the trailer. Um, I know it's featuring John MacArthur, who's a pastor that I listen to regularly. And if you recall, uh, he was he successfully sued the I think Los Angeles County and State of California or whatever when they were trying to shut down his church and threatening him with arrest. He's got a pretty big church out there, and uh, he won. He basically took a stand and said, we're not going to close, and we're going to stay open, and he won. And he won like $800,000 or something, too. Like He won money, not just, uh, not just the right to stay mm-hmm. and, and continue to, to conduct worship services. Um, I think it probably is an important film for people to see i agree with you i think it's it's like most likely a film that speaks to the echo chamber um and you know i don't mean that in a negative way when i say bubble or you say no and that's like that's right i mean that's just it's a it's a style of film and some people will call this film a documentary style film we have kind of gotten away from calling it i don't well, know right. exactly what they get into it that's depends. the thing is it just a bunch from, of talking from the heads. way the tra- right from the way the trailer looks it looks like it's a lot of interviews right and then 
interspersed with some news footage or clips of riots or things that were going on during the time of COVID. What wasn't, it'll be interesting to see because supposedly they get, I, I did read that they get into the story of MacArthur and then the pastor up in Canada who was, who was put in jail. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's a third maybe in Scotland or something like that. And, or, or or New Zealand. I don't know which one because there was one in New Zealand. I think that was getting oh, threatened that's good. This with jail. I put in jail film. too. An international um, film. So the like, did those guys like? Did MacArthur have a camera crew on him like while he was doing his lawsuits and while he was basically not you know following the government orders? Where you got a real documentary style film where you're you know in the action with him or is it basically all reflecting back on what happened yeah. and and retrospective is is fine and sometimes it's all you have it's just a different kind of film and this film it looks like it's probably more not that it looks like it's probably more like an informational like a citizen advocacy United film Right, like an advocacy type film that doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make it unimportant. It 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 can take away from what we often look for or try to do ourselves is to incorporate, you know, an entertainment factor, uh, even human around story. human story with an right, arc, a narrative right, arc, right, even around a story that is uh, bad or negative or dark or scary doesn't mean all of the. You can you there is there storytelling in there? Like, did you follow the characters through the events as they were unfolding? That's hard for a lot of filmmakers to do because oftentimes you don't know you know about things going on until they've already gone on <laughs> right well but you know it's, and but you can't go back in time it's a lot of it it's about structure though is there a protagonist and i don't mean is there a main subject i mean is there like in danish d'souza's film doesn't matter what film he's doing does not matter what the topic is he is the protagonist same for uh, right. Michael Moore. He was the protagonist of every single film. It's a narrative device. And a lot of films like Citizens United films, they they don't you they don't make effective use of a protagonist and an and, and an antagonist. Um story, basic narrative storytelling techniques. Uh, right, and they end up basically being, you know, for the most part, informational yes. content, which does not make it bad or unimportant, but it does tend, I think, and you probably agree with me, it does tend to limit the audience potential. Yes, well, you're not going to change anybody's minds. You're just going to reinforce and clarify for people who already agree with you. Which, yeah, again, Citizens which, United again, was is the not same bad. way. It, it, right. Citizens United was of great utility inside the movement. It galvanized a lot of people. It helped them understand uh, what was going on. It just, it was... Uh, you know, in terms of what we find interesting about filmmaking, which is outside of politics, outside of, you know, outside of any of that, it's what do we like in terms of filmmaking, storytelling? That's, you know, so will it succeed that way? Uh, I'd be, I'm very curious to know, and I'm looking forward to, he wrote uh, today, he says, okay, uh, this to me is a bigger story than Sound of Freedom. This is uh, Jeff and Elkhorn wrote this. 
this is a bigger story than Sound of Freedom. I'll try to get a lengthier response to you later this weekend. So, Jeff and Elkhorn, thank you for writing. You are a fantastic producer. We look forward to your uh, more in-depth report on this film. Absolutely. Uh, I plan on seeing it. You know, I'm, I I don't know if I'm going to see it uh, at a pre-screening this weekend or something different, but, um, you know, because it, 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 it hits my community and the church community. That's what it's about. So I think it's important. Um, and I think too, uh, even though, even if it, even if it is just an informational type film, there's probably a lot of information that you never heard. <laughs> well, why is you know, it going into part, theaters, that, Jeremy? Why is it going into theaters? Why are they doing that? Is that just a promotional <laughs> thing? Cause you're talking about an audience who have largely, given up going to the theaters haven't you i don't know it must just be a it must be a it must be a marketing thing that to try to trigger press maybe if they get it if they if they like you've talked about four walling strategies before and you know getting into a certain number of theaters where you're going to end up triggering automatic press coverage that way which is going to create you know maybe that's their their path toward trying to open up to a Mm -hmm. larger audience well all the more reason it needs to be a good narrative entertaining entertaining narrative when you go into the theaters you are and people are coming with the expectation of being entertained even when they're coming to see something serious or important they expect right and i think entertaining Right, and entertaining doesn't mean like comedic or horror, you know, or adventure, you know. Like it, it, it. Entertaining is if you're watching a really good one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen is called Madness. Oh, sorry, <laughs> and hating Breitbart. <laughs> it's the same kind of film. It's the same kind well, I of film. In the name of the film. What did you say it was? Magnus. And it's about Magnus Olsen, who's been the number one chess player in the world for like a decade now. And he might not be right now at this moment, but he's, anyone that plays chess knows who Magnus Olsen is. And his dad started, recognized at a young age that his son, Magnus, was clearly going to accelerate in chess. And he had him in chess tournaments like three, four years old, and he was filming all of it and he has this guy's life documented (laughs) you know there's there's video footage of all the big chess matches he plays but not just the match he's got the footage of him being nervous in the hotel room before the match he's got the footage of him at the pool trying to unwind with his family and get rid of the alleviate from the stress that he's under to perform against Gary Kasparov you know as a 13 year old the nitty gritty of humanity that that everyone can relate to that creates this dramatic tension and 
energy as you're watching the events unfold that is different than if you just interviewed all the top chess players in the world <laughs> talking about what a great chess player Magnus Inters is, right? With their, or with re, their media or appearances. Re, <laughs> right, or reliving how scared they were to play him or whatever. Those stories might be interesting to hear, but it just doesn't come across the screen the same way as when you feel like you're in the car with him. And so that I think that's that when you say entertaining, you know, entertaining doesn't necessarily mean moved dramatically but it but it has a story it has a a narrative story that you as the viewer becomes connected to or attached to you start to find things about that character that even if you don't like the character he becomes humanized in a way in which you can identify with him and even so like you know he does something like he likes dessert a lot and you like dessert a lot. So that becomes a thing that connects you to him. And then it's, it becomes a completely different experience as you watch the events of the movie unfold. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the case in this film. Well, or but not. they're My in 170 is- theaters. They have a huge opportunity if they are, they have a huge opportunity to cross over and reach a lot of people with their message that they might not already meet, that that they that might not get it anyways, and they it could change hearts. That they have a real opportunity right. to open minds, open hearts. And if it is just an informational film, it's a gigantic blown opportunity. Uh, right. If it's a good story, then it's a great opportunity. And you'll know because whether even or not if they it, last. If they're, if they're gone after the because, first week, then you'll know it was no good. Because even if it triggers a lot of media and a lot of coverage and a lot of people see it, those people are probably going to be people that already agree uh, with the point that, that they're trying to make. Um, it, and again, that doesn't make it bad. It does. It's not that that's not worth doing, but it could be... You know, I don't know. Different ways of making different movies. I think it is why I, Sound I, of Freedom is doing so well because they, you know, they, while I think they manufactured the groundswell uh, that helped give the film liftoff, it worked because it was a good, it's a good story. It's a, it's dramatic. It does exactly what you're talking about. You connect emotionally with the characters on screen. And it's it's harder to do that. It's different. It's a different approach when it's documentary. Uh, actually, I don't know that it's harder. It takes longer, um, and you're it takes longer. You're slave it to costs the truth. more money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're slave to the truth. You have to you have to look for where it actually exists, where those connectable moments actually exist, and you have to know how to identify them when they're happening in front of you. Uh, right. uh, but it's the same idea. You've got to create those moments where the viewer connects in a way that is not informational. It's emotional. And hope- in a way that, right. What you would, uh, if, if, if you and I were directing this film, we would want, and I'm not saying they haven't done this, but what we would want to do is we would want to be able to get people who hate John MacArthur to, somehow see his softer side yes you know some somehow through a joke he tells 
you know, in a car ride or something where he, you know, where you're, where, you know, maybe he's nervous on his way to court, you know, and anybody would be nervous on their way to court. So then anybody that's watching that, even if they don't like him, can get, you know, connected to him in that way. There Mm -hmm. becomes a human connection to the character that way. And then they're emotionally invested in it so that when they're in the courtroom and he wins, even if they thought all the churches should be closed, they feel good about him winning. Right. Exactly. I'm giving you a bell for that one. Thank you. Yes. Once you've connected I've with redeemed people. myself from my blind support of Kennedy, have I? <laughs> <laughs> Your delusional support of Kennedy. <laughs> uh, uh, you are always redeemed in my eyes, my friend. Um uh, so yes, look Only forward by to my savior. I look for, don't call me that. I look forward to, <laughs> I look forward to the, uh, the report from Jeff. Uh, we should also mention Al in Joliet executive producer. Al has sent in a bunch of amazing stuff. Uh, you know, one of which is, you know, and, and we should make sure to close out the ask segment, write us at truth at truthbait.com. Uh, truth at truthbait.com. That is the best way to get a hold of us. Share the show. Um, and uh, th- I wanted to close it out because this is this is this is a difficult story. Uh, Al sent us the story of Brittany Pearson, who is a surrogate, and I know you probably have uh, opinions on surrogacy, pregnancy surrogacy. Uh, two men hired Brittany Pearson to create their, quote, dream family. This is from Lila Rose on her Twitter thread. By the end of the process, a 25-week-old baby was murdered. Uh, she writes, while pregnant, Brittany received a breast cancer diagnosis and decided to deliver the baby early at 25 weeks so she could receive chemo treatment while giving the child a possible chance of survival. But the purchasing couple didn't want to pay Brittany for a baby born before 38 weeks due to the potential health problems of the premature baby. They demanded the baby be immediately terminated. When Brittany refused to kill the baby, they threatened legal action. When she offered to adopt the child, they demanded a death certificate. Surrogacy laws in California give no rights to Brittany or the baby. She was able to deliver the baby at 25 weeks, but the purchasing couple had, quote, ownership of the child after birth. The baby boy died shortly after birth. From the moment of conception, he was stripped of his fundamental rights and treated as a product uh, that could be... uh, Actually, it got cut off on my page there. uh, Treated like a product. Um, I went and I found an interview that she gave. This is just a few days ago. Let's, uh, Let's listen to Brittany. And then instantly, like with my OB, I was like, I want to, to continue this pregnancy. I want to do whatever I can do to make sure that baby is okay. And like to save us both basically was my main goal. Their, their goal was to get me to, with the four. She's talking about, she's talking about the, 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 the people that had hired her. Their, their goal was to get me to, with the four 
uh, different chemo treatments would get me to 34 weeks. And then I'm sorry, no, when she's talking about the goal, she's talking about uh, how far along she was hoping to get before she uh, would deliver the, the baby. We would take a few weeks to let my body recover. Okay. And then we would deliver. So it really oh, would okay. be like 36. Okay. So almost, and they still, almost they weren't okay with that. They wanted nothing earlier than 39 weeks, no matter what, Re- which you can't okay. even guarantee that when you're, when there's no cancer involved, you know, when right. there's nothing else, you still can't guarantee a 39 week delivery anyway. They just started threatening like lawsuits and like, oh, did you guys know she had cancer or has she had cancer before? You know, they started coming up with all these questions of stuff that were like, I didn't expect because we had a good relationship before this. Well, that's the risk I think that you take in this kind of a situation. It's why it's illegal in a lot of places uh, around the world. Okay. And instantly they were just like, we're going to, ter- we want to we terminate. That's it. That's, that's the only conversation they would have. They're like terminate. That's, that's it. And my so- OB tried the, attorneys tried we all tried i tried my agency you know it was just they're like absolutely not we don't want that we want the baby terminated and was it part of your contract that you had to terminate if they if they um, you to or ugh. no so in the contract basically what it said was i had full control over my body so so basically while he's inside of me i had 100 percent control the minute that he is born the parents have 100 percent control right I started meds to induce labor. I had him 4 a.m. or 4.15-ish that Sunday, Father's Day. Um, I didn't hold him. I looked at him, um, and they gave me pictures and, like, a box and stuff. My mom held him, um, so he he was, you know, cared for and loved a little bit. I don't know how much that means to most people, but he was was held um, and wrapped up and swaddled, and he... He didn't, he didn't make it. Obviously he's not alive, but. So he was born alive, but not giving, not given the life-saving measures. They, I, yeah, I just don't want to, I don't want to go too much into detail on the actual part of that, but he, he was held and cared for and loved for a short amount of time before they took him. But So the baby was born premature, but certainly uh, in in many instances these days, viable. And because the surrogacy laws in California grant the purchasers, it's unbelievable, but that's, that's pretty much how it's looked at. Uh, they have full rights. And in California, you actually have the right to deny life-saving care to the baby and let it die. Essentially, a post-birth abortion, or more accurately termed, murder. It's murder. I think it's important to note that the couple uh, is a gay couple, two men, and the reason that I think that that's important to note is because Clearly, in the decision-making process here, there was zero maternal instinct going on present in what they were doing. It sounds like, you know, as the world turns, maybe we'll find out that that uh, that the story is the exact opposite of what we think. But but at first blush, looking at this, 
this looks like the uh, the logical result of progressive policies that cheapen human life and allow a baby to die, uh, preventing it from having life-saving care, life support. Because it's just going to be too much trouble. It's That's one of the sickest stories I've ever heard. Right, that's why I wanted to end the ask section so that we were in a different <laughs> a different segment that demarcated how ugly this story was. Last last soundbite from her. It's it's I don't want to say ironic because it's not funny in any way, but yeah. the baby was born on Father's Day morning at four AM. Wow. So it's it's like Father's Day the rest of their life, you know, they're gonna have to think about that their baby that's the day their baby was born. If, if they even still think of it as a baby, they kept calling it a fetus. Um, every appointment, they just said, the fetus, the fetus. And even every doctor be like, yeah, the baby. Because it's a baby. It's 25 weeks. Like, it's it's a viable child if it, you know, when it's born. And they struggled to find a hospital where she could give birth to the baby because the couple were threatening to sue every institution that they were trying to go... Uh, avoid an abortion ad and try to give birth California well they are uh, gonna face the creator someday and uh, God has a plan that is good and even in horrible stories like that um, God's plan and God's will is good and so even when it's hard to see or know what it is he's doing uh that's what i i i trust that i just trust it that's what my faith is in that there's some some greater good he was working there and uh who knows maybe that's part of uh people hearing that story um that could change people's minds in the future yeah, about perhaps wake some people up huh you know i don't know i don't know what it is i certainly can't begin to read god's mind but i do trust uh without a doubt that his his plan and his will is good and all the bad that that we have in this world to deal with so that, that interview is, was uh, uh, the interview was with Allie Beth Stuckey. Uh, yeah, that's I recognized who, her voice. Yeah, uh, and I had heard some other people mention that yeah, to me. I didn't want to go without saying who that was. Yeah, ugly story. Um, Alan also sent in something else, uh, which is not quite so ugly. Well, it depends on your. <laughs> I guess it depends on your point of view. Um, you know the rapper? Is it for Forgiato? Forgiato Blow, a.k.a. the mayor of Magaville. You may not know him by name, but you'll probably recognize this. Uh, if I play it for you. Target, target, yeah, they target kids. Target, target, yeah, they target and Target, target, yeah, they target You know kids. the target's that wrong. Trying to play yeah. with the kids. It's the mayor of Magaville. I'm preaching again. Yeah, mayor. Oh. The mayor's I a player. I saw... I saw this. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> this this is uh 
<laughs> Here, let me play it. MTG Maggas MVP. MTG Maggas MVP. Democrats get back. Boom. Reporters even get slapped. They're spreading all these rumors because Marjorie be spitting big facts. Deep state in the left always hating. When they gonna let Joe up out that basement? Marjorie, I really love what you do. Keep calling Ronald's out. No one does it better than you, huh? A real businesswoman. AOC's a featherweight. A southern belle, a little hood. Watch her shake and bake. Have you seen the video? I did. <laughs> okay. She is... that, uh, Let me tell you why I watched it. I watched it for validation of all of my opinions about <laughs> Empty Green. <laughs> Don't you think it's edgy that she's up on the car like you would traditionally see in a rap video? She like she would be in a bikini. She's not in a bikini. She's this, in a very short this, skirt. She's like one of yeah, those one this, of those babes in a in a rap video with dollar bills being thrown at her while she while she uh, twerks. This sealed the deal for me as. I mean, el- eliminated 100% any doubt I might have had about my opinions about her being a total fraud. She likes Kennedy. <laughs> uh, I like Kennedy. <laughs> the only yeah. reason she likes Kennedy is to scare people away from him. <laughs> I don't know that she likes Kennedy. I just, <laughs> I was just jabbing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be that would be why. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So thank you, Alan. She Good is, stuff. That was, I watched that and I was just like, wow. Yeah. And I, and she looks and, terrible in it. She looks confused. Like she doesn't even know where she's supposed to be. She's just standing there it's awkwardly. Just so, it's just, it's, it's like you just can't redo, you can't reinvent the Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> yeah is that what they're trying to do here you it's do you remember the super bowl shuffle uh-huh. i wish i'd known you were going to bring that up now i've got to go look for it the 1985 bears they were so good and they were so arrogant and cocky and they all had personalities and then they made this 80s rap sort of r&b song that was like a Gosh, they're all up on stage in, in their. In their I tights. have the forty-five. I have the forty-five. <laughs> you have the forty-five. <laughs> yeah. I have the forty-five record. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I used to listen to that every day, all day. It was the biggest thing. They we performed it at like the school sing. You know, like the spring <laughs> Wait scene. a second. Wait, 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 wait. Bunch of white kids? Bunch of white kids wearing <laughs> football jerseys. A bunch of white Jews? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, I can't say. It was like 99%. Listen, and, I, I did my own fair share of break dancing at bar mitzvahs when I was a kid. Yeah. And I mean, that was, it was huge. And it wasn't it like a gold record? I mean, it went huge. Yes. It, it was, was huge. enormous. It, it was, was huge. Timed. It was, was well marketed. Yes. It was enormous. It was, it was, it was huge. And, and like, you know, there's, there are always like politicians now or media people, like they'll go and they'll do things, you know, to get attention or whatever. And sometimes they're mildly successful. Um, 
they're to me they're all like an attempt at redoing the Super Bowl shuffle. Like I'm doing something that you would never normally expect me to do. I'm getting into a rap video. Here, wait, let's compare them. Because uh, they were like the first team that they were. I gotta get ready for the Sunday fight. Okay, now let's listen to MTG. MTG, <laughs> you're right. MTG, <laughs> It's the now, same thing. The problem is, the problem is, you 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 cannot you cannot outdo the '85 Bears, and you cannot <laughs> outdo yep. the Super Bowl Shuffle. Your em, your your empty green. The empty, you're Marjorie Taylor Green. The empty green you're shuffle. not a rapper. You're not a rapper. And by the way, nobody wants you to be a rapper. I don't want I don't need Congress people. People who are supposed to be supposed to be statesmen going and basically being a joke. Well, hold on a second. Let me just let me just hold you up right there because We've all seen the glorious footage of Donald Trump at the WWE or WWF or whatever they're calling themselves now. Wrestling. He was a bad guy wrestler. Yeah. Is he still? I think that's what she's trying to emulate. She's she's trying to be bad Brandon, dark Brandon. She's trying to be uh, dark empty. She is, but it doesn't work. All you end up looking like is a white girl in a rap video. Oh, I agree with you. It ain't working in this case. <laughs> she did, she's failing miserably in this. It Trump ain't. doing WWE was prior to his uh, career as a president of the United States. He's not doing that now. And I don't like that either. It's stupid, too. It's not... but. He was an entertainer. The guy was an entertainer. Right, exactly. She is I mean, not. she's supposed to be she's supposed to be the, you know, the 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 politician coming in and getting serious in DC, you know, and oh yeah, this is what the, what was this for? Celebrating impeachment week that right, never yeah, did anything right, productive. Right, exactly. I I have no idea. And and uh, I I think it's a bad look for the rapper for Giotto. Bad- for Giotto, uh, he looks like a sellout now. <laughs> like he's just a. It's a bad look for her. It's a bad. It just look. It just the the whole thing. Well, she's, I think she's in that weird satanic throne. It's fitting. She it's, doesn't look comfortable there. Trump would look comfortable in any setting like this. Trump would have no problem pulling this off because he would look. Plus, right he has place. good dance moves. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like he would make himself at home in any of these situations, and he would he would fit in uh, in his Trump way. Doesn't she look? She, she look. She look. She she kind of has this look on her face. Like, should I really have listened to Milo? What am I? What am tell I doing me, here? Tell me. This tell is me a very Milo this. move. I think Milo <laughs> might have been behind this. Right, she right, might still right. be listening to Milo. Is that what you're saying? She's still listening uh, to Milo. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally. Sorry. I'm a little slow to catch up, but yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm giving you another bell. That's a, this is a Milo <laughs> move. Um, yeah. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> Keep it coming, <laughs> <laughs> Alan Joliet. Everybody. Uh, oh, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna put my tinfoil hat on here. I want to shift gears and go a little bit conspiracy theory. Um, 
So, you know, we've talked in the past on this show about my theory that it's possible that China was behind 9-11. And the main motivation for them was to drive a long-term wedge between the United States and Saudi Arabia, which the way that that was executed did exactly that, um, as a means to collapse the U.S.-Saudi petrodollar, which is what uh, gave the U.S. dollar global supremacy, uh, and allowed the U.S. to spend like drunken sailors, never worry about debt, always just pawn it off on other countries who were holding dollar debt because that was the only dollar, that was the only <laughs> currency that mattered. Um, I think I've found something that might, uh, I don't know if that it corroborates it, but it, it's more circumstantial evidence that I might be correct. Do you know about well, you've heard of 9-11, right? Yeah, as a convenience store. No, that's 7-11. Oh. 9-11, yeah, the and gigantic I... terrorist attack that occurred. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and we've also talked about the possibility that our own CIA was involved, and I'm not sure that these things are mutually exclusive when you look at a, uh, uh open communist like uh, Brennan, it wasn't his thing. He the first candidate he ever voted for was a communist. He, he wrote well, he that was his... an actual. He actually was a card carrying member of the CPUSA. So yeah, okay. Well, that's shocking. The uh... which means you have to live five years without brushing your teeth. <laughs> uh, that's gross. He um, he was the director of the CIA for a time, so I'm not sure that it's mutually exclusive that China might have been behind 9-11, and it was also partially an inside job. Uh, this is... Do you, so you're aware of the first 9-11, are you, or, or our 9-11, are you aware of what is regarded as the first 9-11? Uh, no. Neither was I until while I was traveling down a different rabbit hole related to Code Pink and whether or not Code Pink is an op, which I kind of think Code Pink is an op, which has taken me many years to come to that conclusion, uh, I found this quote from Noam Chomsky. Uh, when we talk about terrorism, it means what they do to us, not what we do to them. And what they do to us can be pretty ugly, although it's... It's not even a fraction of what we do to them. I mean, take, say, 9-11. That was a pretty serious act of terrorism, maybe the worst single act of terrorism in history. But it could have been worse. I mean, suppose, for example, that al-Qaeda had uh, bombed Washington, uh, bombed the White House. It killed the president, installed a harsh military dictatorship, uh, brought in a bunch of economists who uh, drove the economy into its worst disaster in history. Well, that would have been worse than 9-11. And I'm not making it up. It happened. What's called the first 9-11 in South America, namely in Chile. On the 11th of September, 1973, the democratically elected Chilean president, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a coup. A dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet was established that ruled Chile until 1990. There was the systematic suppression of all political dissidents. Thousands were imprisoned and murdered. Who was involved in that first 9-11? Uh, it's not hard to find them. 
uh, right in uh, Washington and London and so on. But that's off the agenda. It doesn't count. So that was the first 9-11, and that got me curious. So I went to producer GPT, and I asked, uh, what was China's role? in this particular September 11th. And producer GPT writes, China's role in the events of September 11th, 1973, and the Chilean coup was somewhat complex. At that time, China was under leadership of Mao Zedong and the Communist Party of China. China's foreign policy during the 1970s was driven by its aim to consolidate its influence and expand its ties with other countries in the developing world, especially those with leftist or socialist governments. In the case of Chile, China had established diplomatic relations with the country during President Allende's tenure. The two nations shared a common ideological bond as socialist states. So I like how it's uh, uh, producer GPT, chat GPT, uses socialist and communist interchangeably. <laughs> That's a, Our American socialists might be offended by that, but they're the ones doing it. Um, uh, which facilitated cooperation and friendly relations. After the coup, China expressed concern and disapproval over the overthrow of a fellow socialist government. It firmly condemned the military intervention of Chile in and condemned what it perceived as the interference of the United States in Latin American affairs. So, I think that 9-11, why did they pick the date 9-11? Yeah, that's really interesting. And so, I had... uh, been traveling in South America about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago for several months. I was, I, I basically hitchhiked from Colombia all the way down to the tip of South America. And everywhere I went, you know, you like, you tell somebody you're from Chicago or whatever, and the people are like, oh, Chicago, Michael Jordan, Al Capone, and like they really like you and stuff. <laughs> Could you imagine if you and, did that with races? <laughs> you know, that was around the time when George oh, Jews, Bush could the fish. Yeah, money. Yeah. <laughs> that was in, uh, that was around 05, I think 06. George Bush was president, and we were being constantly told by the media how much the world hates us and how stupid we are and how bad we are looking to the whole world. And I never found that anywhere I went in any country. I found people just love America, want to come to America, have a cousin in America. Like, I would be like, yeah, I'm from Chicago. They'd be like, oh, I have a cousin in Tulsa. I feel like you know, there's a no giant, idea. <laughs> I feel like there's a giant butt coming. <laughs> Till I got to Chile. <laughs> yes. When I got to Chile was the first, I went through about, I don't know, I think 16 or 17 countries in seven months. And when I got to Chile, Chile, that was the first place I got to where like, I had this overall general sense of of the national people not liking me because I was American. Did you ever figure out why at the time or did you just And there was a guy who I met. There was a guy who I met while hiking through 
a national park down all the way, like way, way, way down there in the tip of, of the continent. And he was Chilean and he sort of explained it to me. And he said that they had elected this socialist president uh, and we, re- we installed Pinochet, this horrible dictator there. And basically they've never gotten over that. <laughs> it's sort of hard to get over that. <laughs> and that they you know that they just said you know Amer- and i and i you know for me did i was they, like did they kind learn of shocked their- and surprised you know it's like you know america has a you know all i think is america's good all we do is good things you know i was su- surprised to hear him saying this stuff and and that's what he explained to me is that they had elected this president and uh, you know by a big margin of of uh, victory and he was wildly popular and he was a socialist and we went in and overthrew him and put in pinochet and pinochet uh was a really brutal dictator and people were disappearing and you know they still harbor resentment there against us because of that so that that so are you saying what you're what you're playing to me sounds you know very plausible. Very so you're, interesting. You're saying that you they know? did not learn their lesson. Learn their lesson how? Don't elect a commie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't elect a commie or we'll shove a fascist down your throat. <laughs> hey, take your pick. Their commie or our fascist. Uh, well, that's what we said. Well, I think that's what we said at the time. There is the argument for not letting China get a toehold somewhere. I don't know. And in, in retrospect, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I'm not here to judge what happened in Chile. You may be right. It may be we just shafted them. It may be, hey, you know what, elect a commie, you get what you deserve. Uh, irrelevant to me. The, I just, to me, it is just a big piece of circumstantial evidence that 9-11 was originated out of China, out of the CPC, and they they used our, the jihadists that we built, that we paid for, they used our network to attack us, which was brilliant. They did it in a way that made Saudi Arabia look like the villain, which created the wedge between us, and now they are best friends with Saudi Arabia. The petrodollar is collapsing, BRICS is on the rise, and it happened on 9-11, which is like a big middle finger to the CIA. Yeah. It totally makes sense. I'm glad it fits with their it it fits with their guy that they had elected being a socialist and Chinese you know communists and Mao Zedong being mad about overthrowing the government. Yep, it was revenge. And our government knew it right away. That's why their whole position was this is this is an attempt to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. They knew right away what the motive was because of the calling card of the date. Our CIA knew. Uh, and I think that it also could have all, very well been a bit of an inside job. When you have people like Brennan running your CIA, anything is possible. 
Well, he was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party USA, so wouldn't he be on the side of China naturally? I, right? <laughs> That's crazy talk, Jeremy. You're a, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, I know one thing is that there's a really good rap video out about Target and Empty Green that <laughs> right. is going to save us all. <laughs> right. If you if you watch those videos, you will save the country. And if you go see Sound of Freedom, you, <laughs> you will save children. <laughs> oh. Uh here and I'm going to I'm bumping a whole bunch of content. We'll get to it on Tuesday. I'm eager for uh, us and everyone to get to their weekend. Um, this came from Gateway Pundit. Uh, FIFA, the the soccer, uh, the World Soccer Organization. FIFA begs fans to do the right thing and buy tickets as Women's World Cup gets underway with many unsold seats. <laughs> and uh, that's always a good look when you have to beg people to buy tickets. I think they're even giving them away, and they can't give them away. Uh, the article says the Associated Press, let's see, a large problem, said the Associated Press, is that soccer is not generally a widely supported sport in New Zealand, where they're holding the event, and attracting fans to stadiums in the coldest months of the year was always going to be a hard sell. <laughs> so they, they, clearly the organization hates women. They put their they put the their championship event in a country that doesn't like soccer in the worst season for attracting fans in that climate, the coldest months of the year. Here is the uh, here is the director of FIFA uh, begging people to come to the events. Which is the which are um, New Zealand media. There, on the camera. No, no, on the cameras. So I watch that. New Zealand, we want you. We need you. It's never too late to do the right thing. Come to watch the matches. We need full stadiums to warm us all up. Huh? <laughs> do the right thing. If you don't go to these matches, if you don't support these women, you're not doing the right thing, which means you must be doing the wrong thing. You're evil. Don't support women in soccer. You're evil. There's something morally wrong with you if you don't go to these games. Do you like soccer? Uh, I Actually, that time I was in South America, I went to a game in uh, Argentina. It was one of the craziest experiences I had ever lived through. Was it women's soccer? No, gynophobe. it was men's soccer. You're gyno- and it was <sighs> it was great and it was fun. I, I sometimes I like soccer, sometimes I don't. I don't watch a lot of sports, but it can be definitely uh, exciting, especially in person. I mean, it was it was a regular game, and it was it had more energy than any Super Bowl or NBA Finals or World Series. It was it was incredible. Yeah, but none of the energy was on the field. <laughs> it no, all it was stands. all in the stands. <laughs> yep, I saved my friend's life. A guy was about to fall on him from the balcony. Wait, I mean, so was, you let the guy just land on concrete or on the chairs? <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, that's fun. the move. 
They yeah. lock you in the stadium at the end of the game. They lock because it was like oh, a crosstown classic kind of thing. Oh, like to Cubs keep the crowds Sox. from uh, so they lock, each other. They let right. So what? So you're like locked in for an hour for all the other fans to mm, leave the stadium nice. and clear the area. <laughs> nice. And then they let the local people leave and go home. <laughs> Do they keep feeding them drinks for that hour while they're corralled? <laughs> There's no alcohol inside. Uh, water. That's shocking. That was all they had. After they were it's, all they done. They act that crazy on water. After that's that's nuts. They're clearly very drunk before they get there. They <laughs> uh, after you were all done watching the match, did you guys all go do the right thing and watch some women play soccer? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what, that's the move? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um uh, no, I think women's sports should be illegal. <laughs> illegal. There go half our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, sometimes I think you might have mercury poisoning. And I eat a lot of the fish, and I got my mercury levels tested recently. My levels are 10 times what EPA considers safe. I was told by Dr. David Carpenter, who's a national authority on mercury contamination, that a woman with my levels of mercury in her blood would have children with cognitive impairment, with permanent brain injury. And I said to him, I mean, she might have. And he said, no, 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 the science is very certain today. Her children would have some level of permanent uh, brain damage. And he said, probably with my levels of mercury, a permanent IQ loss in those kids of about five to seven points. All I'm saying is it explains a lot about RFK Jr. <laughs> oh, send me a picture of your yard sign. Do you have to make it yourself? Do you have to like send it off to a printer and have it made? No, what I decided I'm going to do is I'm going to get a bunch of Trump signs and a bunch of Kennedy signs <laughs> and line my entire four I'm going to I'm going to stagger, I'm going to alternate <laughs> for the 400 feet of road frontage that I have and just freak people out. <laughs> <laughs> all my Trump neighbors are going to be like, woo And then all my all my Biden neighbors are going to be like, just, the, it's true, they are working together. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> they, well, they might be. I don't know. I don't know. Jeremy Siegel, thank you very much once again for your truth and bringing it to the Truth Bay podcast. Uh, thank you to all of our producers, our listeners, our listener producers, and our and our active producers. Uh, Al in Joliet. Uh, what do we have? We also had uh, we had uh, didn't we? Jeff, have Jeff? and Elkhorn. Yeah, Jeff and Elkhorn. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm grabbing all my papers at once. Uh, and uh, we had Aunt, executive producer Anne as well. Thank you, everybody, for contributing. It shapes the show and it makes our lives easier. Keep it up. Write us at truth at truthbait.com and tune in every single Tuesday and Friday, sometimes Wednesday and Saturday, but twice a week without fail. To the best of our ability. And now, back into the sea of clickbait with us all. <laughs> <laughs>